Morning. So we're in Acts chapter 1 this morning. Uh, this uh, year, what we're doing as a church is we're studying through the book of Acts, and we're not just preaching on it on Sunday mornings. We're reading it, and so we've been encouraging everyone to read one chapter a day. That gets you through the book 12 times, so basically read through it once a month. You get a couple catch-up days at the end. We're memorizing one key verse. If you didn't get your memory verse card, you can get one on the way out today. Uh, we just printed it out. That way, make it a little bit easier for you. Throw it in your car or your, your wallet, whatever, your purse. Uh, and then we're also discussing it in our life groups. We're studying it through our daily dig every single morning. And then, of course, we're preaching through it on Sunday mornings. And today, we arrive at verse 8. We're going to look at verse 8, which is our memory verse for the month, and really see what's in this verse. And this verse verse for, I guess, uh, 2,000 years or so has, has served as a kind of a rallying point for Christians, going back to this verse and looking at it as the, uh, almost the mission statement of the church. When the church was instructed specifically by Christ, do this, receive this, and then you will become something as you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, this morning, what I want to do is really help us understand this verse and why it is that we're memorizing it. Just go ahead and toss that up here. Let's see if I can catch. There we go. Very nice. 100% I'm going to need that before we're done here today. So uh, really kind of focusing in on this key verse and understanding it that way throughout the year, uh, as you recite this verse, since you, you memorized it, this month, it'll come back to you and you'll go, ah, yes. This, the, the mission statement of the church, how I fit into it. And, uh, and, and the wording of it is, uh, it's pretty simple. It's not like there's like a lot of complication to this verse, but I think we can look into it and, and draw a lot of meaning out of it. Let me say this another way. If you were interested in Christianity, or if you professed faith in Christ, if you do profess faith in Christ, wouldn't it be good to go back to the beginning of the Christian church, and to ask and to examine how is it that this movement began and how is it that despite persecution, despite incredible uh, opposition, both like internal from their own people and then external from the Roman government, how is it that this movement began and then kept going and still exists 2,000 years later? How was it that that came to be? The study of Acts helps us understand it. A couple of the things that we've already learned in our time on Sunday mornings uh, is first, what gave the disciples uh, a growing confidence that Jesus was exactly who he said he was? Well, it was the resurrection. Uh, in verse three of Acts chapter one, it talks about how Jesus had presented himself alive to the disciples. And that, of course, was a, uh, a major moment in their lives. He was dead and then he was alive. And their message throughout the book of Acts is not much more complicated than that. Jesus was dead and then he was alive. And we saw him alive, not just once, we saw him multiple times. One time, 500 people saw him, and they're like, this is the same guy that we saw crucified, and now he is alive. The Christian message really doesn't go too much further than that. Jesus was dead, and then he was alive. And for 2,000 years, the church has rallied around that simple message. Christ died for your sins, and then he rose from the grave as victory over it reconnecting us back to our heavenly father who we were separated from because of our rebellion, because of our sin. 
And so the resurrection of Christ began to like birth this confidence in the disciples. And in their last conversation with Jesus before he sends up into heaven, this was in verses five, six, and seven of chapter one, they asked Jesus, hey Jesus, are you going to establish your full earthly kingdom right here, right now? For centuries, the Jews had believed that a time would come when a Messiah would come and he would reestablish an earthly kingdom like they had under David, where they would conquer a territory, they would own it, and they would have a government, and they would have uh, military protection, and they would thrive uh, in a kingdom that was physical and of this earth. And so the disciples asked Jesus that question, and Jesus responds first by saying, I don't want you to get caught up on when that kingdom will finally come. It will come someday. Jesus will return to earth. In fact, in the passage I just read, he said, hey, I'm coming back. I, I will come back exactly as I left. So it is not that Christ isn't coming back. He is coming back. But Jesus tells the church, I don't want you to be so focused on when I'm coming back and establishing that earthly reign. Instead, when Jesus is answering the question, he pivots, and his pivot is this verse right here. He says, instead of being so worried and so focused about the kingdom that is to come someday, instead, instead of asking, will I build my kingdom fully right now, I want you to know that you're going to be equipped to build my kingdom right now. So this is how he answers. He says, don't worry about that future kingdom. Instead, instead, you it's not about what I'm going to do from like a, a physical perspective. He, he says, you will receive power, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And it is these words, this one verse that the church has rallied around for 2,000 years. And the book of Acts then is simply telling the story of the successful completion of that verse. In chapter two, we'll get there in a couple of weeks. In chapter two, we'll see that the Holy Spirit actually does come and he uh, fills the, the, the church with power. Uh, and then the early books of Acts will show the story of the gospel taking over Jerusalem. And then we'll get to a chapter and it'll transition and you'll see the gospel uh, flowing through Judea and Samaria. And then you'll get to the end of the book of Acts, the last eight chapters or so, and you'll see how the gospel is then moving to the end of the earth and Acts will leave us with Paul in Rome. The gospel has then moved in this uh, period of time, uh, over 20, 30 years, all the way up into the very heart of the empire. And Paul will be there in prison waiting to present the gospel to the emperor. And this verse helps us understand how these 11 guys, we'll see later, there's 120 of people who profess faith in Christ in that time, how those 11 and then that 120, empowered by this Holy Spirit and emboldened by this truth that Christ has resurrected, would begin the movement that we know today and why we still gather on Sunday mornings. So here's how the verse goes. He says, instead of being worried about the future kingdom, instead what I want you to think about is this, that you, now the you here in the verse is initially, of course, these original 11 apostles or disciples. 
And they will be the ones who initially receive it. Uh, of course, one of them, Judas, had gone bad. And so they're going to replace him a little bit later in this chapter. So there's going to be the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. And so they're part of the you. And then there's going to be 120 of them in the upper room. If you're not familiar with that term, that was just the place where the Holy Spirit descended on the church at first. Uh, there's going to be 120 of them there. So they're included in the you. But as we continue to read through the book of Acts, we're going to see a couple of hints that you doesn't just mean those 120 right there, but you meant the church, the universal church for all of time. There's going to be a story later, and if you've been reading along with us, you've already hit this story, where the disciples are going to break into Gentile land, and so the faith is moving out of just the Jewish people, and now it's uh, infecting the whole world, and Paul, excuse me, Peter, uh, who's one of the founding members of the church, is going to have this conversation with the other church leaders, and he's going to say, guys, I was there, and guess what happened? The Holy Spirit fell on them just like he had fallen on us. Uh, Peter was saying that this, this Holy Spirit power, this thing that God is doing through his Holy Spirit, it wasn't just for us, and it wasn't just, it's not just for the Jews, and it wasn't just for us, and it wasn't just for the 120 of us who were in the room on that day. I was there, and I saw the gospel preached, and it fell on them exactly like it had fallen on us. This Holy Spirit, he, he like, he's moving. Remember what Jesus said right before he floated up into heaven? That it would go out? I'm seeing it with my own eyes. A couple chapters later, the Apostle Paul would go into Ephesians. Uh, again, if you're reading along with us, you just read this a couple days ago. He would break into Ephesians in one of the most fascinating conversations, I believe, in Scripture. Where Paul's going to show up and he's going to go, wow, you guys are believers. He's going to call them believers and he's going to call them disciples. And he's going to say, and did you guys receive the Holy Spirit? And they're going to go, what's that? What's the Holy Spirit? And he's going to go, oh, you're missing one of the best parts. And so these people who are referred to as believers and disciples, the Apostle Paul is going to look and he's going to say, you, you need the Holy Spirit. And he's going to teach them about the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to watch how in uh, Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, after Paul teaches them about the Holy Spirit, how everything begins to change. And then they start to tell all of these stories of how the gospel begins to spread through Ephesus because they've received the Holy Spirit. I say all of this to say that the, the you that we're seeing in this text is you. It's you and it's me. It's all of Christians all of time that we receive power. He says, but you will receive Receive. It seems like what Luke is doing here when he's uh, talking now, of course, he's quoting Christ here. And it seems like what Christ is doing, uh, Luke was the author of the book of Acts. That's why I re referenced him. Uh, what Jesus is saying here uh, is he is reminding them of a previous story that he had told all of them. See, at one time, the disciples, a couple years before this moment, they had asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, how do we pray? And Jesus had taught them how to pray. And then at the very end of this little story, this is in Luke chapter 11, if you want to read it on your own, uh, Jesus is teaching them how to pray. And he uses this metaphor and he says, and the point of your prayer and when you pray uh, and when you consistently ask God, God is good and he likes to answer your prayers. And so he will give you the Holy Spirit if you ask. That was in Jesus' teaching on how to pray. He ends it with, and what more better thing could you pray for than, than give me your Holy Spirit? 
So you will receive, and uh, in this particular case, it seems like what Jesus is teaching us is that one of the ways of receiving is just simply asking, like, God, can I have more of your Holy Spirit? God, can I be covered in your Holy Spirit? God, can I use your own term? Can I be baptized in your Holy Spirit? Like, just fully immersed, like I was jumping into a a pool and got covered with water. I want to be, like, covered in your Holy Spirit. Will you fill me like that or cover me in that? And see, I'm using this term, baptism in the Holy Spirit. And some of you grew up in congregations and churches where like you never even heard the term Holy Spirit used, which is tragic because he's a part of the Trinity. He's God. And others of you, you grew up in congregations or churches where the Holy Spirit was mentioned, but baptism in the Holy Spirit, that wasn't mentioned because that was like, that's a little too far. And others of us, we grew up in uh, churches and in, in, uh, in church environments um, that you saw abuses of the Holy Spirit, and it turned you off. And you said, I will never go to a church that frequently talks about the Holy Spirit because I've seen weird things done in the name of the Holy Spirit, and it kind of freaks me out, and, and it seems a little cultish or a little manipulative or things like that. And some of us, um, in, discussing, in discussing the scriptures lately, I've had some of these conversations, have shared some of those abuses that they've experienced or some of the ways where it seems like what God meant for good, sin turned into bad. But what we see here in the text is that God's strategy for taking the gospel to the world was a Holy Spirit-empowered people connected into a Holy Spirit-empowered church. That that was his plan. We say it around here like this, that this is God's church. And in order for it to be God's church, that means Jesus has to be in charge and the Holy Spirit has to be the power. And if Jesus isn't in charge and the Holy Spirit isn't the power, then it's not the church that Jesus came to plant. Because the church he came to plant, Jesus was still in charge, even though he was up in heaven. And the Holy Spirit is the power. And so let me just tell you about the quest that we're gonna be on. In our stated seven values, I've already mentioned two of them actually this morning. Let me give you a third one, and that is that we are a post-denominational church. So what does that mean? Well, we kind of made it up, so it can mean whatever we want it to mean, I guess. What it means is this. We understand that we're all coming from very, very varied denominational backgrounds. If you don't know the term denominational, that just is like a a sect of Christianity that has a stated um, beliefs around doctrine. And one of the things, probably the primary reason that there are so many denominations, especially in our country, is because of this phrase, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you study, if you just study the history, you'll see that the thing that has divided the church the most is this phrase, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I had a very well-meaning conversation with an individual a little while ago, and they said one of the things that defines the church the most is how they teach through Acts. And he was right. He was right. How you preach through Acts is one of the things that will define your church. And so here's the quest we're on, guys. We're going to try to preach through the book of Acts, talk about the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and instead of it dividing us, it unifying us, okay? 
And I would much rather just say it out loud than try to like sneak it in. And here's what this means. There might be some of you who come from the very Pentecostal background and you're going to go, Stephen, you got to push it further and harder. Right? And then there's going to be some of you that are going to be on the other side. If you wonder who's on which side, just watch them worship. Right? And there's going to be some of you over here and you're going to go, whew, you've already said the word Holy Spirit more than I heard 30 years growing up in church. Like, you need to slow down. Okay. And so here's this, what would be awesome is if this group took a step and that group took a step and instead of this step being this way, it was inward. And our value of being a post-denominational church where we rally and unify around core doctrine would get stronger, not weaker, as we work through this. And I think as we do that, we will reflect more the church that Jesus came to plant. And so during this time and these weeks, I will share a little bit about where I stand. And some of it comes from my history. I will respectfully submit to you guys, that you can fully exist and operate within this church and in some of these things not completely align with my way of thinking. That's very possible. I'll share with you historically how some leaders and pastors and people that you guys probably know and have heard of respectfully disagree on some of the stuff that we're going to talk about. And by the way, if you are wondering, how do you decide as a post-denominational church what is most important? Here's how we decide. If we, and this is kind of, we didn't actually do this, but this is like a practice. Like if I lined up 10 leaders of evangelicalism, right? 10 leaders that everybody knows and everybody respects. And if I lined them up and I asked them questions like, is the Bible infallible? All 10 of them are going to raise their hand. Is the Trinity uh, a, a necessary doctrine for understanding God? All 10 of them are going to raise their hand. But if I ask them the question, is the baptism in the Holy Spirit like this, five might raise their hand. And if I say, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit like this, five, like, like something else, five might raise their hand. And so then we step in and go, okay, all right. So is this, is this Satan's way of disrupting unity in the church? I would say it is. And what if, we could get to an understanding where our conflict made us more committed, more committed than ever to each other and to this gospel. And this is one of those issues. So this baptism in the Holy Spirit says, but you will receive power. You will receive power. Now, the term power here, uh, most of us probably have heard this before. We get our word dynamite from this Greek word power. And so we're not talking about like a little thing here. We're not talking about like, oh, it's kind of, no, like the, the dynamite type of power, like explosive type of power. Like you're going to receive uh, something that can, that can break down walls, that can break through barriers. Like what you're receiving in this baptism is powerful. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit, here he is, has come upon you. 
Now, Jesus, in verse 5, has already told us that this, I believe it's verse 5, that this coming upon us is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's what he has uh, taught us earlier. And he had told the disciples, like, just wait a couple of days, and he will come, and he will fall on you, and, uh, and you will then receive him, and you will, like, see him. So just kind of wait. Now, in Acts chapter 2 is going to be the actual moment when the Holy Spirit, like, comes upon us. So for some of this conversation that I've just set up, I'm telling you this is like a six-week conversation, not a six-minute conversation, okay? So, by the way, if you're, if you're expecting me to resolve every tension this morning, you're wrong. I'm just setting this up. He says, but you will receive this power, okay, and then when they actually received it, that was in Acts chapter 2, which, again, probably a couple weeks from today when we actually talk through it. He says, you will receive this dynamic power. It will come upon you, and then when it does, you, the people who have received the power, will be my, Jesus's, witnesses. And this morning, what we can do from this verse, and, and the way that we can unify and rally around this, is to see in the scriptures why it is that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. What was the primary reason that Jesus said, wait, don't try and go do this on your own, wait for it, wait for it, right? Okay, now the Holy Spirit will come. And why? So that you will be witnesses that in Jesus' own words, was the primary reason that he wanted his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit so that they might be witnesses. Now, in a moment here, I'm going to talk about what a witness is. But first of all, where we can unify as a post-denominational church is the primary reason Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to empower the church was so that we would be good witnesses. That's why he sent it. Let me say it this way, if I can. Hopefully, you can follow this little metaphor. The primary reason for buying a car is what? To get from point A to point B. That's the point. You buy a car, especially like that first car, to get to point A, from point A to point B. Now, Cars can have all different sorts of features, and certain people elevate other features over other features. But I have yet to meet somebody and I say, hey, why did you spend $30,000, which right now will buy you like a used, you know, 2010 Honda, right? Like, why did you spend $30,000 on that car? Because it has heated seats. There's a lot of other ways to keep your butt warm, right? You don't need to spend 30 grand. And what happens sometimes with the Holy Spirit? Is people get so excited about the Holy Spirit, so excited about the Holy Spirit, so excited about the Holy Spirit. And then what they do is they elevate the heated seat. They elevate this small part of the Holy Spirit and they say, and that's why. Like, that's a good thing. I love my heated seats. They're awesome. But remember, the point of the car is what? A to be. The point of the Holy Spirit is what? That we would be good witnesses. Which means anything, any usage of the Holy Spirit, I know usage is like, it's a weird word, but, but any expression of the Holy Spirit then that stops me from being a good witness is now working against the very point of the receiving of the Holy Spirit. The point of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' words, why? So that you would become something, what? Witnesses. 
And then what do all of these other elements of the Holy Spirit do? Like guiding us into truth and convicting us of sin and giving us spiritual gift and the usage of the gifts of the Spirit and all of these other things. What do they do? What do they do? They make us good witnesses. They make us good witnesses. The primary reason he says, you will be my witnesses. And actually, the, the, even the, the language that is used and the verb tenses in it, it, it's not something that you like force yourself into. It says it's like a very natural thing. Like you receive the power and then you just are. You receive the power and then you just, you're just a witness then. So what's a witness? Because this is why Jesus granted us this Holy Spirit, primary reason, to empower his church, that we would be good witnesses. What's a witness? Well, uh, even the term in its own time, and this hasn't changed too much in our time, uh, gives about three different understandings of what it means to be a witness. First, a witness is somebody who shares an experience. A witness is somebody who shares an experience. So you and I have been equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit so that we might share the experience that we have had with Christ. The Apostle Paul is going to do this. In fact, I think in our reading, he did it either, he did it yesterday, and where he gets up in front of a group of people and he was like, I was this guy and I was doing these things and then I met Jesus and it changed me. And that's pretty much his story. I was doing these things and I was that guy and then I met Jesus and it changed me and now I'm a different person. And part of why you and I have been empowered by the Holy Spirit is so that we might, and Peter will add later, uh, say that we should do this in any and every season, when it is good and when it is bad, when the world is freaking out and when the world is at peace, we should always be ready, empowered and equipped by that Holy Spirit to simply say, this is my hope, it's in Jesus because this is what I've seen and this is what it has happened to me and I was this and now I'm that. And the sharing of our faith, and we use terms like evangelism and all of this kind of stuff or testimony and everything like that, it really just boils down to I've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to share my experience with Jesus with others. And so I was this and now I'm that. I used to really care about this, you might say, and now I care about that. Outside of the Holy Spirit, I was, oh man, so messed. And then I stepped in and I was different. And that's just sharing our experience that we've had with Jesus. And you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that, to share the experience that you've had with Jesus with other people. And you and I know this, the, the more personal, if I can use the word, the more intimate that that experience has been with Christ, the more transformative, the more powerful it is than when you share. When you say, man, I, like you don't understand. I was in such despair. And I met Jesus, and it changed everything. I had no hope. I had no reason to want to live, and then I met Jesus. And he was there with me every step of the way. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that. Secondly, a witness then uh, is somebody who uh, stands or speaks the truth about something. We know this from our own legal right uh, perspective nowadays. Like, hey, who's the witness? Okay, the witness, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Right? A witness is somebody who speaks the truth about something. 
And early on, the apostles uh, were, were mostly this type of witness where they would just get in front of people and say, hey, we got to tell you something. We got to tell you what we saw and what we experienced. Yes, but we need to tell it to you in an actual and a factual way. Jesus, we saw him die, all of us. We saw him die. Some of us even put him in his tomb. And I'm telling you that they even did like this thing where they, where they, they stabbed him with a spear to make sure he was really dead. He was really dead. It wasn't like he was sleeping. There was no like magic potions involved. He was fully and completely dead. We put him in the tomb. We buried him. We all got into despair. We got depressed because we thought this whole thing that we had given our last three years of our lives, you were done and over, and now he's alive. And so they just kept telling people that. He was dead, now he's alive. He was dead, now he's alive. How can you ignore that? How can you disregard it? How can you say it's just a story? How can you say it's just a metaphor or an example? No, it was an actual bodily resurrection from death to life. And they were the truth tellers. They said, our job then is just to go around and to tell people the truth that Jesus was dead and now he's alive. And that if you believe in this story, it covers your sin and your sin separates you from God. But all men have sinned and the, the result of that sin is death. And death means separation from God in this life and eternity in hell. But Jesus died on the cross, so that doesn't have to happen anymore. And then he rose from the grave. And so now we have a freedom. And that's why we talk about freedom all the time, because we're set free now in Christ. And you, my friend, are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a sharer of that truth. In one of his letters, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I know some people think it's foolish. They think, oh, this idea that like a guy can die, he wasn't just a guy, he was obviously fully God, but that, 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 that God would like die this brutal death like, uh, and that would pay for my sins somehow. Like I even needed my sins to be paid for. Like this whole thing just seems a little too simple, seems a little bit foolish. In one of his other letters, Paul's like, hey, I know some of you think that what we're preaching is foolishness and it does seem like foolishness to those whose lives and hearts haven't been changed by it. But I want you to know we don't need eloquent speeches and we don't need this great intellect, not that we can't be smart to simply understand the most profound truth in the history of the world, and that is that we were dead in our sin, but Jesus died in our place. And this is the gospel. And he says, and all the people who think it's foolish, don't worry, because the moment their heart changes, they will begin to see how it is not foolish. It is the most profound thing ever. It's the most profound. And you are empowered by the Holy Spirit, to not be ashamed of that gospel, but to simply share it with others. So you share your experience and you share the truth of the gospel. So to witness, guys. The third thing that witness was, and I think remains to this day, the word for witness in the Greek and the word for martyr in the Greek almost became synonymous. They just, they like, almost like merged into each other. Like you could use them interchangeably. And so a witness was somebody who was willing to, in its original definition, a witness was somebody who was willing to stand for something to the point of death. Oh, and we see the 11 disciples and many, other, many others in the church who they would believe in such, with such deep conviction, with such deep conviction in this gospel that they would stand for it up into and including death. In fact, you only have to get, I think, seven chapters in before you see the mob turn against one of the early 
proclaimers of Christ, and they take him out and they kill him. And this will not be a rare story. It will become common. And so a witness is somebody who's willing to suffer as Jesus suffered, who understands that the call to Christ, though filled with incredible blessing, though it sometimes it, it, Jesus refers to it as the life that is truly life or the abundant life, and there's all of these good things that our Heavenly Father pours out to us, and most of us know this, and we've seen the blessing and the working of, of God in our lives that we can look to and say, God, you're amazing, and, and what you've given me, I don't deserve it, and all of this, but underneath that, then, there is also this understanding that God, the God of the universe, can simultaneously bless us and pour things out to us that we don't deserve, that we're so overcome with and have all this joy over. But then at the, other, at, the, at the same time, there can also be this thing inside of us that says, and even if all of that was taken away, I would still believe the exact same thing. If every earthly blessing, if every worldly treasure were stripped of me, I would still believe the exact same thing. If every comfort was gone, if I was left homeless and despaired, I would not stop singing the name of Jesus. And never for a second would I doubt that he is just as good and just as loving as I would when I had all of the earthly treasure. And a martyr, a witness, simply proclaims Jesus and his goodness, regardless of what it has cost him or her regardless of what it might cost him or her. Because the conviction has triumphed over comfort. And the witness just says, Jesus, no matter what, no matter what you've won me, your gospel has changed me. I am yours, no matter what happens in this life. And you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to have that kind of faith and to live that kind of life. So you will receive power by baptism when the Holy Spirit, Israel, has come upon you, Christian, and you then will be a sharer of your experience, someone who stands for the truth about Jesus and someone who is willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. And you will be those witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, which is just a, a Jesus way of saying in that moment, everywhere. You'll be it everywhere. And you can't ignore being it right here and right now, so be it right here and right now. Start close but care about what is far out. This isn't like a sequential thing like, okay, once we've conquered this, then we'll worry about this, then we'll worry about that, then we'll worry about this. It was more of a perspective that this is for everywhere and everyone. And so at all times, in every ways, we should be concerned about that which is close and that which is a little further and that which is a little further than that and then that which is furthest. And we should always, as Christians, be concerned about all people and their need for the gospel. And so then we will be those, those three things, that witness for all of them. And there will be a couple of things, and we'll read through it in the book of Acts, that are going to be true at every level. And that is that at every level, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and then for you and I, uh, both in our families or in our uh, larger family or in our friend group or whatever it might be, a uh, couple things that are going to be true. First, there's going to be opposition at every level. 
I mean, it is as equally difficult to preach the gospel to the people that we are closest to as to the ones that we have never met. In fact, my experience is it's often actually easier to proclaim the gospel to people that you've never met, particularly people that you've never met in different cultures. Because like, there's like a language barrier here and, and, and like I'm not embarrassed by what you think of me. And so sometimes it's actually easier to do that. But there's going to be opposition every level of the way, at every level. And the church is going to face opposition at every single circle. Like every time they step out, there's going to be opposition. And there's always going to be opposition and there's always going to be resistance to the gospel. And that's why it goes back to then I've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to break through this opposition. And to not be ashamed of the gospel, but just to proclaim it. To be excited about it because it changed me. And so there's going to be opposition at every level. Another thing you're going to see is that um, as the, as the, uh, the, the, uh, the advancement of the gospel is always going to happen through the church. It's always going to happen through the church. The people aren't going to run around acting independently, right? We live in kind of an era right now where, like, there are, like, a certain segment of Christians who are like, oh, I'm done with church, and I'm, I'm, I'm staying out of church. I'm not doing that anymore. It's so messed up, and it's so screwed up. Well, guess what? It's not in the scriptures. The scriptures, the movement of the gospel always happens through the church. Always happens through the church. And so, uh, uh, and it's Christians uniting and connecting together, and then through the church and the guidance of the church and the power of the church, like, moving the gospel out. And then what we're also going to see is that there's going to be contextualization at almost every level. And contextualization does not mean changing the gospel. Contextualization means that uh, you're going to see how Paul's going to adapt what he says and how he communicates and the things that he does at different levels. And contextualizing the gospel is not a bad thing. Changing the gospel is a horrible thing, right? And Paul is always going to keep the gospel central. In other words, what you most need is the gospel. And Paul is never going to change the core of the gospel, but he is going to contextualize the gospel. And so one of the things that we pray for in this Holy Spirit empowerment that we have is teach me how to contextualize the gospel without changing the gospel or without not making it central. I still want to centralize it. It is still what is most important. I don't want to take the core of the gospel away, but I do want to properly contextualize it. And so that's one of these things that you're going to want to learn through the Holy Spirit on how you contextualize the gospel in the different circles that you find yourself in. Because you're going to see that at every step. Uh, But here's what you're also going to see. You're going to see the effectiveness of the gospel at every level. And you're going to see how the gospel breaks in all over. Like it just can't be stopped. The simple message, he was dead. And then he was alive. And that paid for your sins. And it granted you your salvation and your freedom. That message always going to be effective at every single level. Finally, the gospel is going to break into Europe at some point in our study. And when the gospel breaks into Europe, you're going to see how in three stories... A rich lady, right? She's called that in the scripture. A rich lady, a sex slave, and a blue-collar worker guy are all going to be changed by the gospel in one story. And it's Jesus' way of saying, this thing is for everybody. It's for everybody. Doesn't matter what your work is. Doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter what your background is. It's for everyone. And so you're going to see the effectiveness of the gospel at every single stage. And what should this understanding compel us to? Well, first, I hope it will grow in you a desire 
Whatever you grew up in, it will grow in you a desire to have and to know and to sense. I'll even use the word feel, that power of the Holy Spirit upon you. So you say, well, what do I do? Ask. Ask for it. The Holy Spirit, like, I, I want more of you. I want, I want to be filled. I want to be baptized. I, I don't understand it completely, and I don't know all of the doctrine. I don't know all of this and that, but we'll get to some of it. But, but, but whatever it is that empowers me to be that kind of witness, I want to be it. And I'm not going to worry about all of the other things, and I'm not going to worry about the heated seats, and, uh, and whether it's bucket seats or bench seats or anything like that right now. I just want to be a witness. I just want to be a witness. So would you empower me to do that? To be good at what was key and central. Be a good witness. And so I hope it would do that in you. Second thing then, I would hope that as a church, that what it would do for us is compel us and give us great desire to always be about the advancement and the spreading of the gospel at all levels. And so this should mean that we're good at not just, um, well, let me say it this way, that we should be good at leaving this place and realizing that we are witnesses when we leave and we carry the gospel with us. We carry the beauty of the gospel uh, of Christ and we carry the love of Christ with us as a, just as an example to show people how Jesus has changed us and so we love our neighbor as ourselves, and we communicate the truth of the scripture with us everywhere we go. Because I just need you to know Jesus changed me. I just need you to know he was dead and then he was alive. You were destined to hell, but now you can spend eternity with him. I need you to know that no matter what happens in my life, I still praise Jesus. And it gives me strength and peace in every situation. And so it should make us great witnesses as we leave this place. It should also then, as a church, um, make us think and, uh, and strategize and ask ourselves the question, how can we be most effective in spreading the gospel, both at home and abroad? And so we should always then have open doors because everyone's invited to experience redemption. And so we should always have open doors, come on in and come hear the beauty of the gospel. And I, and I don't focus on my own comfort and priority. I focus on, man, I just want people to know the gospel. And that's my key focus. That's your key focus. It means that we should be good as a church at supporting missionaries, which we do now. After five years, God has laid that out in front of us. It means as a church, I think that um, we should have a desire. And I've mentioned this once before, and I'm just going to keep saying it as God will, will lay out the plan to plant churches. Because what we see all through the book of Acts is churches planting churches. And so we want to be a church that plants churches. And so that should be in how we set up our, our budget so we make sure we have money to be able to do that and to advance the gospel. Um, it should be on how we train people up because at some point in time, God might call people from our own church to leave and to go plant churches. It means that we need to have a mindset as a church that says, hey, if we can sacrifice a little bit so that another church can get going, that would be a good thing. And some of you might be thinking right now, aren't there enough churches in this country? I think if we have learned anything over the last two years is that there might be a lot of places that call themselves churches, but there is a great need for churches that actually remain the church when it is most needed, okay? And so maybe more than any time in my life, we look and say gospel-centered churches who will actually stand for truth and not cower. Now is exactly the time to plant those types of churches. And so you see what begins to happen, guys? Oh, it's like something begins to move in you. It's like, I want to be a part. I want to be a part of what God's doing. I want to be a part. I want to let me know what's my role. How can I help? What, what do you want me to do? And I hope that all of us would find ourselves there. 
And then as we continue to preach through this book of Acts, like something will begin to burn in you and something will begin to come out of you that you have not seen in yourself in a while. Uh, and there will this be this desire. People got to know this gospel. They just got to know it. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, for any who would ask right now, Phil, empower. Baptize. May the coward become courageous. May the sleepy be woken up. May the passive begin to take action. May the fullness of your gifts begin to be used. May your church be the one that you came to plant. And Father, unify us during this season. More unified than we have ever been before. Fiercely committed to each other. To the core message, you died and rose again. Teach each of us in here how you would want to use us exactly to further your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.